Hello, and welcome to Through the Undertow. I'm your host, Nicole Lowell, and today's episode is one of many Melinda Prince. So come with us as we wade through the undertow. Thank you for joining us today. As always, we provide trigger warnings and content warnings in our show notes and on our episode pages at our website. That's www.throughtheundertow.com www.throughtheundertow.com See the latest episodes on our homepage or click on the episode link for a more comprehensive list. Today is our one of many series where we interview other moms and or dads who are parenting children that have been sexually abused. Our guest this episode is Melinda Prince, whose family has been going through a difficult journey and who also started a support group on Facebook to help herself and others in their journey. Melinda is a mom who has her own story to tell, and I'm going to give her that opportunity to tell us that. Melinda, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So tell me what your story is. Uh, my story is that I was married to a man uh, for 15 years that was a verbal, physically abusive man to me. And then I divorced him eventually. And he got, we shared 50-50 custody. And then he decided he was going to start sexually abusing our daughter who was 12 at the time. Um, We shared three kids together. Our daughter who was 12 at the time, a son who was nine at the time and a son who was seven at the time. The nine-year-old son seen one of the sexual assaults on his sister. And is he the one that disclosed it then? No, my daughter disclosed it. And then It was kind of like a ton of bricks. Like it's one of those moments where the air gets knocked out of you, literally. Absolutely. And you have so many ranges of feelings that course through your entire body in one sentence, one sentence, and everything in your world changes. And it's so many different emotions in one moment. My daughter disclosed uh, one night just out of the blue. My son then was like, you know, my nine-year-old was like, you know, don't you? Um, And I said, I know what. And he was like, about what dad did because I seen him do it. So then it hit me at the same time, not only was I devastated for one child, I also knew that my other son had been traumatized by seeing it. And so it's a whole nother set of emotions. And then it hit me at the same time that our youngest son had no ideal, but was extremely close to his father. And he was going to probably have a whole different set of issues. It's a life, literally a life altering moment. So, yeah. um, And so do you know how long the abuse was going on for? What she remembers, I believe this had been going on for some time in her life. I I believe that just because I, I always tell the families in my group on Facebook, my support group, I always tell the families. A lot of times I hear moms say, how could I not have known? 
How could I have not have known? But there are signs, but it's like a puzzle. So when you have one piece of the puzzle, it doesn't make a clear picture. It can be explained away. Some of this stuff can be explained away. But when you have several pieces of the puzzle, it makes a big picture eventually when you put all the absolutely. pieces together. If that makes sense anyway. It absolutely makes sense. That's the same. I feel it was very much the same with me. You, yes, same you have, thing. Mm-hmm. Yep. I think most people in our situation will find that they want to take that final piece of the puzzle and say, why didn't I know that final piece of the puzzle ahead of time? And it's like, well, but that's the only piece that you were missing. And once you got that, everything else looked different. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. I mean, as much as I wanted to, for sure, what she remembers, I think most of her life, it was probably touching and the manner in which he attacked her, which is, when she tend to be asleep, I think mm-hmm. as a small child going into preteen, I think it left her wondering, did that really happen or was that a dream? Because for toddlers and kids and small kids, it's hard to tell the difference when you're asleep between reality and I think once they wake up in the mornings. Sure. Uh, but for sure, for sure, what she knows for sure with actual rape was three months, I think, four months. Mm. The June to, I want to say October, she disclosed in October. October 6th was the day she disclosed. Mm. I'll never forget that day ever in my entire life. Yeah. Um, and, and things changed. Things began to change between her and her father's relationship she had always been close with her dad and enjoyed going on those visits. And all of a sudden, she wanted nothing to do with him. Nothing. I mean, I allowed this man to stay in me and my current husband's home when him and his wife were divorcing so he could have a relationship with his children. I I, I don't know. There were just... So many things, I mean, I look back at and, you know, I mean, he even got to a point where I asked my daughter, like, what is going on between you and your dad that you don't want to go visit him? This is what I mean by little pieces of the puzzle. Sure. I thought, okay, she's just being a preteen, wants to run with her friends and that's more important, you know, because they reach a point where kids would, they want to do their thing and it. And it's hard when you're divorced parents and primarily reside with one parent, usually. Right. So it's hard because they don't want to leave their friends who have things going on to go be with the other parent. But it was such a sudden change looking back on it. And that wasn't what it was at all. But in my mind, that as a mom, like, that's what I was thinking. Like, she just doesn't want to take time out of her social life and go see her dad. Looking back on it, I probably shouldn't have thought that. I should have. But I even asked her, like, what is going on? Because it was so odd. And she just nothing and just was very closed off about it. And I let it be. But yes, Well, and I, I think as parents, we kind of go to the most plausible excuse. I think that's <laughs> understandable that we yeah. wouldn't jump to the conclusion of the reality of the situation. <laughs> no. You know. No. We, yeah. 
Nope. And um, just finding it out and going back and saying, oh, that's why that happened. Or, well, that makes sense now. Or this is why that happened. And that makes sense now. Or she did this. And this is why that happened. So there's Mm -hmm. very a very large dynamic in this horrible, horrible thing of sexual assault. So especially when it involves your children, as you know, so it affects every single kid in the family differently um, because there's so many different dynamics. It's been a long, hard road and it still is every single day. And so when she disclosed, what happened then? So when she disclosed, um, I mean, I had literally been out with a friend and she texted me and said, I need you to come home right now. I need to talk to you about dad. And I was like, which dad? (laughs) And she's like, my dad, dad. And I was like, okay. So I came in and I don't even think my husband knew I was home yet. Because when you come in our front door, you can either go down to her room or up the steps to the upstairs of the house. And when she told me, I wish I hadn't reacted like I did because, but it was just such a tidal wave of emotion. I let out a scream and my husband come down thinking something had happened to her, not really realizing that I was home and I couldn't even get the words out. I mean, it literally took the breath out of me so badly. I like, I couldn't even get it out to tell my husband what was going on. But then once I did, you know, he got me upstairs because she was freaking out because I had such a horrible, not because I didn't believe her, but because it just tore my heart out to my core as a mother. Sure, it sure. My heart out for her that somebody that she loves so much would betray her. And there was nothing I could do about it that I couldn't protect her. It ripped me apart inside. And so then I called my friend who I had been coincidentally out with, who is a lawyer. She is actually a guardian ad litem. At the time, she was a guardian ad litem for Boone County, which is the county we live in. Mm -hmm. I told her what was going on. And um, she told me, she said, I want you to call the 800 number, report it. And then she said, first thing in the morning, I want you to take her and Eli to the Boone County Sheriff's Department and make a report there as well. So as soon as our eyeballs opened, because it was too late at that point to take them. So that next morning we got up, we went straight to the police station. And by the time we made it to the police station, Children's Division had called and they were on their way there as well to be part of the questioning that the police were going to do with my daughter and my nine-year-old son. That was an experience I'll never forget. Sure. Um, Were you allowed to be a part of that? um, Because it was a criminal investigation and my children are minors and it was dealing with law enforcement um, because the only reason Children's Division was there was they wanted to also be part of the criminals because they have. So in the state of Missouri, I don't know about anywhere else, but in Children's Division, they have in just plain investigators and then they have criminal investigators. So in this particular case, because of the nature of it, it was a criminal investigation. And anytime you're interviewing minors where there might be legal ramification, like the parents are supposed to be there. 
I would have been completely fine. Trust me, if I could have not been in there, I would have not been. Because the things I heard in there, I will never, I'm pretty sure my mouth fell wide open. Like, I couldn't believe that my daughter even knew words like that or Mm. knew about things like that. Right. Um, That's how vile and disgusting it was. Yes, they allowed me to be in there. I could not talk. One thing I remember is looking at my daughter as she talked and the way that she held her head in shame and picking her fingernails continuously. I'll just never forget that. Slunched, just completely ashamed look she had. And then my son, when they questioned him separately, he was so uncomfortable with it that... All, he he is very much an emotional eater. And so all he would he kept saying was he would, you know, the ideal is to let them talk and not ask too many questions. Okay. He would say some stuff and then he'd be like, Can I have something to eat now? And <laughs> you could just see how uncomfortable he was with what he had seen, and he was truly disturbed by it. Right. Then it went to because the last assault happened in a different county because she was at his home. They decided to hand it over to Saline County where he resided. Her caseworker, I explained to her, this is a little small country town where everybody knows everybody. A lot of things get done that ain't necessarily always right. And those justice systems. Okay. Um, She said, I promise you, I will not let that happen. My daughter's case, I found out later from the criminal investigator. She was amazing. She said it was one of the very first cases I ever worked. And she said that case will always stick with me. I wasn't going to just let it go. I mean, in fact, she threatened to call SLED on the police because the chief of police knew my ex-husband they actually went to correctional officer school together. Oh, wow. We were roommates during that time period. And he was like, not going to go try to collect any evidence from his home. Told me to throw away her clothing from the visitation, all of these things. And she said, do not do that. And even though her boss told her, do not threaten them, when her boss went on lunch, she absolutely called and said, if you do not do this investigation impartially and do it right, I will call SLED in, which is, I guess, who investigates cops. Okay. Um, And they called him in, questioned him. Of course, he denied, denied, denied. Um, And then they released him. I couldn't believe it. They released him. On bail or just on his own? No, he was only on a 24-hour hold. I was livid. (laughs) Livid. I was mad. (laughs) Because while I have all these emotions I'm dealing with, trying to get my kids through things, I also had the fear that he would kidnap my children and go on the run. Because at this point, he knew he was caught. Sure. And because he had 50-50 custody and had not been found guilty of that crime yet, it was just an accusation. He could have walked right into the school and took them. They would have not stopped him. 
They had no reason or grounds to stop him. Just because an accusation is made doesn't mean that, especially when it's the other parent, until he's found guilty, he still had rights. Right. Um, And that was my, on top of everything else I had going on, that was my biggest fear. But eventually I got a call from the prosecutor attorney's office and wanted more information. And I had to take my kids to get interviewed, forensic interviews, Okay, which I was not in the room for. They did those all on their own. Okay. Then I had to take my daughter for a rape kit. And I remember trying to hold myself together through that for her, but just completely falling apart on the inside thinking, my child's 12 years old. We shouldn't even be doing it. Like, on what planet is that okay? Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like, on what planet does a 12-year-old child need a rape kit? Right, right. Even not in my world. Like, it was just, and the way that it was done, uh, they would use big words. They were taking pictures. Um, you have a 12-year-old sexual assault victim. And you have her, I never even knew what stirrups was until I was a grown woman and had my first female appointment. And here's my 12-year-old child and they're taking pictures and they're using big words and they're talking about my child. And I remember she had tears in her eyes and she would look at me and say, what is that? What what are they talking about? What is that? Right. So it was like... It was just a very, I, I just, I would give anything for that not to have had happened. If I could have just took her out of that moment and put myself in her position to take that from her, mm-hmm. I would have. Because I don't think anybody should have to go through that. And then from there, they arrested him because they did find damage to her cervix, indicative of sexual trauma. Uh, the prosecutor called me and said, we're arresting him. We've issued two warrants or two charges, a warrant for two charges. Um, one was sexual statutory rape with display of a deadly weapon with intent to cause physical injury or harm with a person less than 14 years of age. Uh, the other one was statutory sodomy. Each of those charges carried a five-year minimum to a life sentence a piece. So they kept him and in so, jail. Yep. Kept him in jail. $50,000 cash only bond. Okay. So he's in jail. Did he end up going to trial? No. Or was there a plea deal? He was in jail and uh, the prosecutor called me one day and he said, I want to offer him a plea deal. Okay. So let me back this up. So in Saline County, they don't have a grand jury. So usually if they bring felony charges, it goes in front of the grand jury. And then the grand jury decides, is there enough evidence that a felony crime has been committed? And then it okay. goes on to the trial and things like that. So in that particular town, there is no grand jury. So the prosecutor called me and said, do you think your daughter could withstand being in the courtroom with him? For the preliminary hearing, because mm. there's a preliminary hearing that happened since there is no grand jury. I said, I don't know. 
I feel like she could, but I'll talk to her about it because I never want to do anything without speaking to her about it first. Absolutely. You could tell she was apprehensive about it and she was upset about it. But I explained to her, like, you're his daughter. If he will do this to you, he will do this to someone else. And if you're the only one that can stop him, I can't stop him. I can't. You're the only one that can put, stop him and hold him accountable for what he's done. And uh, we got Baca involved, Bikers Against Child Abuse. She went in there. She testified face to face. No matter how his lawyers asked a question, she answered it. And the judge, who coincidentally, this was his first day on the bench ever. Oh, wow. <laughs> one of the first cases he ever heard. He found enough evidence that the felony crime had been committed and that it should be held over for felony court. And sure enough, he decided that, I guess, the prosecutor called me and he said, I want to give him a plea deal of 120 days in a sex offender assessment unit with seven years per account to run concurrently. So concurrently means together. Sure. Yep. So consecutive would have been a total of 14 years. But with the 120 days in the sexual assessment, it's prison, but he's in a sexual assessment place where they assess how dangerous is it? How likely is it that he will reoffend? And I told them, this will not work for him. And I said to the prosecutor, so you want to give him a 120 day sentence and my daughter gets a life sentence and our sons. Sure. Well, how much time would be enough time? I said, every day that my kid has to wake up or my kids and live with this, he should be behind bars every day. Right. That's my true belief. And I will stick with that till the day I die. He flat out said he, he was going to do it, whether we wanted to or not, because not only would Tara have to testify at a trial, Eli, my younger son, would have to testify who is nine. So putting a child that young in that situation who was already pretty distraught and struggling, and I don't know how he would have held up, but I was against the 120 days. And the reason that I was against it was because in the state of Missouri, the prosecutor had to drop the part off that's on the charges that said with a child. Oh. Because, yes, because any act that is perpetrated like that in the state of Missouri is on a child is considered a violent offense. And it and should be. It definitely yes, should it be considered a violent offense. Should be. Okay. Okay. Yep. Should be. But if he didn't drop it, he couldn't give him the 120 days oh. because the assessment will not allow violent offenders. Oh, and so yeah. did he end up doing that? Is that what, is that what happened? Yep. Yep. However, when he took the plea, I asked my lawyer friend, is there anything we can do to try to fight this? And she said, if your daughter gives a powerful enough impact statement the judge could overthrow out the plea deal and make it go to trial. And so my daughter got up there. She did her statement. It was very powerful. The judge was taken aback, I think, a little bit by it and asked her if she knew why we were there that day. 
And she said, yes. And she said, do you think the punishment fits the crime? And she said, no. And he kind of sat back in his chair. He told her, he said, you can step down now. And she came back over by me and he sat there. It seemed like maybe 20 minutes looking at a computer screen and you could see he was just scrolling through things. Hmm. And in that moment, he was looking for something, something that would spare her and her brother, but still give her some real justice. Right. And um, at that point, my ex-husband spoke up and said that he had a statement. And basically his statement was after the first time it happened, I was scarred. Then she kept coming back for her visits and I just couldn't help myself. And now we'll both live with those scars. I've never wanted to jump across the courtroom and. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> you know, so bad in all my life, but the judge, I didn't even have a chance to, because the judge is like, are you seriously trying to make this about you right now, sir? He decided, the judge decided, he said, the only way, he said, your daughter doesn't think the punishment fits a crime and I'm inclined to agree with her. He said, the only way that this will work or that I will accept this plea deal is if you agree to do the seven and seven consecutively. He said, if you so much as sneeze wrong and I see you back in this court, you're going to prison for 14 years. Well, it didn't quite work that way, but that is what he agreed to. He got out after he did his 120 days, was out less than three months, and I had people keeping a very close eye, very close eye, because like I said, it's a small town. I grew up in that town. So did he. Everybody knows everybody. Sure. He was a felon, a convicted felon, and he was dating another felon who had a 10-year-old little girl. Ooh. And she knew. She knew his story. She was taking her child around him and he knew that that wasn't allowed. He wasn't allowed to be around anyone under the age of 18 without supervision or even permission, even ask permission from the parole officer. Oh, okay. Okay. So, I mean, they had him on a whole slew of violations. He was out less than three months and they sent him back to prison. He's in a sex offender unit. It always kills me when you read news articles of other people's stories and they say, Oh, they'll get taken care of in jail. That doesn't happen. They keep them together so that that doesn't happen. Sure. So there came a point when my, our youngest son was hospitalized because he was grieving so intensely for his dad Hmm. um, that he became suicidal. He was sad at school all the time. He wouldn't do a schoolwork, wouldn't do nothing. I reached out to his dad through email at that point. First, I spoke with my daughter about it. And um, I told him when he called, I couldn't stand him. I hated him for what he had done. But that Noah needed that at that moment to pull him out of this. And I had a lot of people question, like, why did you do that? Well, there's a lot of reasons why I did that. The first reason was because I, as the mother, and I know you're probably going to get this, I sit back and I watch them suffer the effects. Things happen and you're like, well, this is why it's happening. Why should he get to sit in a jail cell and not have to see what he's done? Absolutely. But you know what I found to be crazy about that is that 
He does not care. No, unfortunately. Doesn't care. Mm -mm. No, doesn't care. My daughter was 12. She's now 18. I almost lost her last year because she ran off. She got herself in a domestic violence situation with a boy. Uh, We're talking a good student. uh, Wanted to be a nurse, cheer captain, band, took off and let some boy cut her entire family out of her life. Now, I think to myself in those moments, would that really happen if it hadn't have been for her trauma? Right. Would she make those choices if it hadn't have been for the trauma that the man that was supposed to teach her how a husband's supposed to be, how a man's supposed to be, hadn't have been such a vile, disgusting piece of crap? Absolutely. And taught her that control and... And and he doesn't take any accountability for that, responsibility for that. Uh, recently, his calls are, my son, I, I'm glad that I did that because it took some of that off of me and put it in his face. Like, look what you did. And I think in my mind, I was hoping at some point that I would see some care about it. Right. Does that make, Absolutely. make sense? Absolutely. You hope like that her yeah, is like empathetic is just like you are. Yeah, yeah. Like, how can you sit in prison if that were me? I couldn't live with myself knowing that this is what I had done and caused for my own child. Right. Um, he is not that person. He is very much about, um, and let me just add, when he went back to prison, it was less than three months that he had a parole hearing. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so I had to go to that and argue with the parole board and talk with them about why he shouldn't be released and why they should keep him. So I've had to fight every inch of the way to keep this man behind bars where he belongs. <sighs> every bit of justice my daughter has gotten, it's been because, or my son It's because we have fought for it. I have fought for them and it's not been an easy journey. And then June, this last summer, he had another parole hearing. Mm. And pretty much when he was in there, I think it was at that moment that I understood he doesn't give a crap. (laughs) Like, he he just doesn't. Well, to see him on video discussing, and they make him go through the crime in detail. I mean, explicit detail. And he talks about it just like I'm talking to you right now with no emotion, no sadness, no regret to the point where I'm my whole body's like this, Mm -hmm. even though he's on, it's just trembling and shaking, even though he's on video the just the sight of him makes my whole body shake. So, you know, they asked him questions just to give you an insight on how a perpetrator's brain works. They asked him, are you sexually attracted to children? And he said, I don't know. They said, are you sexually attracted to your daughter? And he sat there and said nothing. Oh, that's interesting. He probably knew that if he said yes, that that wouldn't go well. I find that interesting that he wouldn't think that he refused to answer as opposed to lie. I would think that he might be 
might just lie and not. When they ask him to describe the crime he committed, in his mind, he said, and then we had sex. Mm. Okay, you've been in prison for six years now. You've had six years of therapy and everything else. In his mind, this was a consensual thing, obviously, because he said, then we had sex. And I thought this older gentleman on the parole board was going to jump through the TV screen. Wow. He said, "Uh, no, sir. No, there is no we. There was a you. Yeah. You decided she was your child and your daughter. Like there was no weed. When you say we, that's a joint decision. She's a child. And obviously in her body language, which you just described earlier, obviously she wanted nothing to do with that. That just gives you an ideal of how some of them think. Absolutely. Like in their mind, this is a consensual thing. This is a normal thing. It's not. Um, And you would think by being in prison that long and the therapy that they receive that he would have figured that out by that point. But he didn't. And the only time he was showed any kind of emotion was pretty much he almost jumped with glee to talk about how he's got his paralegal license. Mm. Yeah, he gets to go to college in prison. Then he was like excited and showed that emotion. The parole board was not impressed. They ended up keeping him and said, you will not be released until June of 2025. Oh, that's good. That's good. (laughs) Yeah. So. Well, and I think the other thing that we run into, the issue that we run into with people who commit crimes of this nature in jail is that essentially any victims that they would have access to are taken away from them. And so even when they have like extremely good behavior in prison and you know, they can show that they haven't started anything. Well, they're not going to start anything with anybody in prison because that's not who they would go after out in the real world. Right. They don't go after kids. And, you know, they told him before he can be released, he has to go through the Mo Sop sex offender program. It's 18 months long. And they told him, we suggest that you use it. Don't take do the course to just check the box off. You, sir, really need to pay attention and utilize what they give you because there's something wrong with you. And the lady on the pro board said, I cannot in good conscience put you on the street because you will Mm reoffend. And I know that because she said you have something wrong in your brain. Like she was not a nice person about it. And then recently... The last time he called me, he wanted to yell at me and tell me how everything was my fault, that he's still in prison. And that was the last phone call I ever had for him and that my daughter should just get over this and move on because this happens to hundreds of kids every day. So guess what I did? I called the parole board and I told him to pull the phone call. Good for you. Good job. And I said, you all want to release him. The prison wants to release him. But clearly, he is not getting the help he needs. If that is his mindset about victims, then he doesn't get it. And he's feeding you guys a line of BS like I told you he would. Right. And the advocate said, I'm pulling it right now. Oh, good. Good. And they did. So 
I have not spoken to him since. I reject his calls because my son doesn't even ask to talk to him anymore. I think it was just the fact he was so young. He didn't understand what was happening. And I always monitored his phone calls with the youngest. It was strictly about school. How are you doing? You know, I still miss you. I love you. I did bad things and I'm sorry about that, that I'm not out there with you. I would not let him discuss anything. I watch like a hawk and I listen like a hawk. <laughs> I'm glad that we're past that phase because I just, the sound of his voice just, ugh. but it's been a long, hard road. Your son doesn't have any contact with him now? Nope. He doesn't even ask. Neither of them do. Our son, who was nine at the time of the assault, he has his own phone. He's 15 at this point. Well, 14, almost 15. He has his number. He doesn't answer his phone calls either. Okay. He's blocked his number. Now the youngest one is almost 13. He never asks about him, doesn't ask to talk to him. It's a very sore subject with him when a lot of kids, because we live in a small town, know the situation. And it has been used against my children in a number of ways. Oh, that's heartbreaking. Noah, my youngest, he... People know that that's a sore subject. He doesn't like for people to talk about his dad in a not necessarily bad light because he understands. It's when you're doing it to be mean, to get under my skin and the things in which you're saying, that's when he reacts. Even my daughter has had nasty things said to her mm. because of it. By kids. I'm just like, man, it's... Well, kids can be definitely cruel. I just don't think they understand the ramifications of what they're bringing up unless someone else has gone through it. Right. And so that brings me to my next thing is a lot of people think, well, it's just this one blip, this one thing, and it only affects this. That isn't true. It affects their schoolwork, their sleep patterns. You can't even discipline them the same. Absolutely. I have the same issue. It's how do you parent this child? (laughs) All of a sudden, the way that you parent that child and people around, I think that unfortunately, the other thing that we deal with as parents is not only how do we handle this child that's been through this, but then the rest of the world is looking at us and judging us as parents on the basis of their own children, which haven't necessarily gone through the traumas that ours have. That's right. And the other thing is, is... When your children have friends, you kind of, and they're staying the night, I always told the friend's parents, because a lot of times kids who have been perpetrated on will tend to perpetrate on other kids, not understanding necessarily. By the time my daughter was 12, she knew it was wrong. But prior to that, I had did catch her acting out with her brothers. And I, in my mind, thought maybe this is normal. They're just experimenting. I don't know. But it goes back to that, her dad. Right. It all started with him. And so I always felt a duty. And I had been faulted by some parents for doing that, not giving us a chance to get to know the child. And then you dump this on us. Well, but at the same time, if I don't, and something happens inappropriate, then you're going to come back on me and say, well, if you knew this, why didn't you tell us? Right. So what do you do? I mean, we are extremely judged 
in any way you go. I mean, it was just, it's been a, <laughs> I wouldn't wish this on my worst enemy. And I truly mean that. So tell me about your Facebook group. So I created the Parents of Sexually Abused Children. It started out with just me and a few family members that I thought could help me keep an eye on it. I never thought it would grow to as big as it is now. You know, I'm grateful. I was grateful when people started coming. I wish that there was no families right. in it, to be honest. And how wh- how long uh, ago did you start the group? Right after everything with my daughter happened. I think it's been four, four years. years. Okay. And so, you just yeah. recently hit 500 members. 500 yeah, members. Wow. And to me, that's 500 too Absolutely. Many. <laughs> it breaks my heart that there's that many kids, families that go through it. But I created the group because I was in a situation to where it's hard to have friends. You can't talk about this with your friends. They'll listen to a certain point, but it's always been such a taboo subject that people don't want to talk about it. And I always say to them, why? What do I have to be ashamed about? What does my kid have to be ashamed about? Of course, it's disgusting. I'm sorry it makes you uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable. It makes her uncomfortable. But this is our life all day, every day. It's just how it is. And it's sad because it shouldn't be that way. But I created the group because I couldn't even express into words how I felt at the during it. I couldn't talk. I lashed out at my husband. Like I said, I didn't even, I didn't yell at him. I raged at him because I kept everything in because I didn't know how to express what I was feeling. I didn't know how to say, and he didn't know what to say either because he, as her stepfather was feeling a whole different set of emotions, but trying to hold everything in to support the kids and I. Right. And so I just, I mean, it could be the, been the slightest thing and I would just rage. And it was because I think it was because I was so angry sure, and I had no way of getting rid of that. And I felt so alone. Like I felt alone, like in the first week of the disclosure, I wondered, is this normal to set and think about? Like I could kill him pretty easily. Right. Is this normal to not be able to close my eyes because every time I do, I just envision this horrible scene playing out in my head or I played out my daughter crying, needing me and not being able to do that. I would think about, did she cry? Did she want me? And I wasn't there to help her. Mm-hmm. And so as more families came into the group, I learned very quickly, these are all normal things. The guilt, the anger, the sadness, all of it. That I wasn't weird or alone. It's like you go through this court case and then they just toss you out. There you go. There's no resources. There's no calling to check in or getting you with. I, I was shocked for my daughter. There was support groups as a victim. Right. But as a parent, there was nothing. Right. And I was like, this is just not right. right. Like, I can't believe that I'm the only parent going through this. Like, how is there not a group for this? It's so emotionally draining for parents. Absolutely. 
You, I'm, you yes, know. oh, I do definitely. Well, and I think the other yeah. thing is like we as parents are the ones that are finding those support groups for our kids or finding those resources for our yeah. children. So we're running around fighting and advocating for our kids every day. I need you to listen to this. I need you to listen yeah. to my kid's story. I need you to give my kid the help that my kid needs. Yeah. All the while missing yeah. out on the fact that hey, wait a second, we also need help too. And like you and I just discussed right. previously all of a sudden how you even parent your child, you cannot parent a child that's been through this kind of a trauma the same way that you would parent a neurotypical non-traumatized child. It's not, they don't work the same. Their brains are functioning differently. I understand what you're saying, how you felt alone. Nobody understands it. They say, oh, I understand, but they don't. Absolutely. They don't. Or they get mad because your kid has a My daughter does not open up. She does not trust people. And that comes off as being bitchy sometimes and hateful. It's not that. That's her defense and coping mechanism. You haven't been through the life experience that she's been through. So you don't get to judge her or tell her how she should be. Uh, That angers me beyond all measure. She is responsible for healing her trauma, though. And I've told her that, you know, like, I understand you can't help what happened, but you are responsible for learning to handle it and deal with it. Like you're 18 years old. Like, and I think she gets that. But at the same time, I also understand why she hates and doesn't want to do therapy because I wouldn't want to go in a therapist office and drag all that stuff up. And she said, when I do that, then it brings back the night terrors and she had horrible night terrors. I mean, for the first two years after she disclosed, she slept in my bedroom floor, me and my husband. Mm. I mean, because she right. was afraid or she would get very little sleep or she'd wake up in the middle of the night upset and crying. And I mean, it's just, it's insane. The And it's nice when you can talk to somebody else and they say, Hey, I got your back. Like, let me help you where I can. Yes. Let me lend a hand, even if it's just to listen. I've had moms call me and I've talked to them at 11, 12, midnight, one in the morning, two in the morning and say, yes, what you're feeling is normal. Or a good example, not too long ago, I had, spoke to a mom who didn't understand why police weren't doing this or doing that or why they didn't want her to do this or do that. And Once I explained it, she was like, oh, that makes sense. But I was able to calm her and say, just take a breath. I know it's hard to do. And you know it's hard to do. But you have to. You have to let them do their job because when there's an investigation, anything you do could throw it away. And then a perpetrator could end up walking. It's, It's just a lot. And it's important to me that the families know that they're not alone and that they always have somebody there listening here because everybody's from different places. Like, I think you're in a different time zone than me. When I might be asleep, you might be awake or vice versa, or another member might be somewhere else needing help and another member is awake. I mean, you just never know. But I have never seen one single post in that group go unanswered. Never. Somebody always answers something. And that's what I wanted. And if I don't have the answers, 
and you need them, I'm going to find them. Well, and I think also with the varied experiences we have, I mean, there's definitely the common thread of the sexual trauma to our children, Mm -hmm. but with the varied experiences of how it happened, there's definitely somebody in that group that can say, oh yeah, I've been through this before as well. Yeah. Because there's such a variety of situations. You're right about that. Yeah. So, yeah, so the group is a support group for parents of sexually abused children and it's on Facebook. So you've helped other parents, but have you gotten any assistance through the group? Is there something positive that you've taken away from having the group? I feel like in this situation with my daughter, I needed to find something positive in it, something good that would come out of it. My hope is at some point we can all, 500 people, that's a lot of voices. That's a lot of voices. Sure. Yes. Like in Missouri, the law needs to be changed. They should never, in a situation like my kids, be able to drop off the part with the child. Right. Just to give the perpetrator a lighter sentence, especially if it's a person in position of trust, like a parent. That's just plain BS and should never happen. But the only way to change it is for people to stand up and have a voice and start to change it. And I'm not an educated person. I don't even have a high school diploma. I don't know how to do those things. And so my hope is one day, everybody, we can be a loud voice. I mean, there's so many loud voices for racism and things like that. And those things are important. So is this. Like these kids are the future. And I think to myself, this has been going on for decades, decades. And we're no more further than we are. Why is it when a light sentence is given to a perpetrator that is perpetrated on a child, there is no walks, there is no rioting, there's no outrage at the courthouse for crappy prosecutors that want to give out these light sentences. Right. Or the judges that also agree with it. Like, thank God you had a judge who was like, "Mm, no. We're not going to do this. No, we're not doing that. Yeah, we're not doing that. It shouldn't even been a suggestion. Like, get your crap together, people. So my hope is if you get enough people, sadly, in this group, eventually there will be enough people in enough places to where maybe they can stand together in their area and say, hey, we're here for this kid and this isn't okay. And you're going to hear us. This kid deserves justice. I mean, kids can't speak for themselves. It's our job. I mean, they can, but only to a certain degree. Like, until they're grown, it's our job. Like, even today, before I did this, I asked my daughter, like, are you sure you're okay with that? Because I never want to take away from her rights because at the end of the day, she was a I'm just, just the mom. I think the group has helped me to not feel so crappy about myself and to feel like I'm not alone and that there's nothing wrong with me and the way I'm processing or the way that I thought when I went through this and I've learned things that I didn't do that I probably Mm -hmm. should have done that I try to tell other families. I was so focused on my children that I never stopped and said, "Mm, Melinda, you better slow down. You probably ought to just take a hot bath, maybe go get a massage, 
you know, something to just be. I think moms forget about our own self-care. And I think especially when we're going through things of this nature, it's so, so important to take that moment and stop and do that. And I also think that unfortunately... In the stories that I've heard and the, you know, I I can't speak to statistics, but what I've seen and heard and learned is that oftentimes in situations like this, when it's your spouse, there were situations of you having either gone through trauma yourself with that spouse or having gone through trauma previously in your life that impacted your relationship with your spouse. And I think that... Well, you know, we have forgotten that we're super important in this equation and in the healing of our children. Yeah. I had one mom tell me, I'm so angry. I said, I was angry too. And I said, you know what I wish? I wish I'd have went to one of those rooms where they give you a baseball bat and just let you beat everything. They have TVs sure. in there, Absolutely. old computers. I wish yep. I would have did that. I wish I would have took my daughter to do that, to get those yep. feelings out. Some of it, at least things like that. But you learn as you go and then you take that and then you educate other people to try to help them. And that's why I made that group, because I was like, I cannot be the only parent going through this. Like people need help. This is hard. It's really hard. Like I am my daughter's first PTSD episode. I didn't even know it hit me after the fact, but not in the moment. Absolutely. Makes sense. And it was something as simple as one of her female friends and a guy friend were tickling her in the floor. And she kept saying, let me go, let me go, let me go. But they they weren't thinking. They were just tickling her, trying to play. Something that's normal to them became something different for her. And I didn't catch it until she done run into the bathroom. And when she got up, I could see it in her eyes. Her pupils were huge. She just had a wild, like a wild animal that had just been caged look in her eyes. And she ran it, locked herself in the bathroom for a while. It's moments like that, that if Ida had a group or something where I could have been like, oh, well, that's what this is. Like you guys stop. Of course, they were super apologetic. It's just things that we have to learn to deal with Mm -hmm. as a family. It's awful. It's awful. She just said to me the other day, when he gets out, I'm getting a restraining order because I just don't think he'll leave me alone. I think that he's going to try and have contact with me and I don't have nothing to say. Well, good for her that she's taking that step to protect herself and create a boundary. Someone she loved so much betrayed her to that point she feels she has to protect herself it's a hard thing too and i don't know if other families have thought about this of how different things would be had it not yes i definitely think i'm i'm sure that most parents think that like is this behavior a result of this situation and what would it be like if that didn't happen absolutely i definitely think parents go through that because i feel like um When this happens, it changes that child. It changes who they are. That's my opinion about it. I don't know who my daughter would have been. And maybe I don't want to know who that person would have been. Because they probably wouldn't have been half as strong as she is. She got away from a domestic violence situation a lot quicker than I did. Yeah, but... You know, she came home and she finished finished an entire senior year Mm -hmm. in four months. 
So she's on track to graduate in May. She graduates on my birthday. Well, congratulations. So there is hope that there can be a happy ending because statistically speaking, she should be a high school dropout and all kinds of crap. Well, I also think it's important to hear the stories of healing that actually, you know, I, I think that we can't forget that she is impacted every single day and what happened to her, but that doesn't mean that she can't figure out a a way to work through it and be successful in whatever that looks like now. Yeah. I mean, she just went and bought, she turned, she's 18 now. She went and bought her own car. Uh, She works a full-time job. She's completely done with school. Took her four months to do an entire senior year. She graduates on my birthday in May and and she's trying to get into cosmetology school. So, I mean, I think it's it's a hard path. And I think that that's why she chooses to not okay. do therapy. I think for her to do therapy would take away from that. I think she's afraid that it would slow her down because it takes so much emotion mm-hmm. to deal mm-hmm. with that and process And she's very good at shutting her emotions Mm -hmm. off and down. And the criminal investigator told me, she said, if you had seen the forensic interview, you would understand why. Yeah. Just because her brain literally like had to shut itself down to be able to make it through the experiences. Yeah. Kind of trauma and experience. Like it would literally shut off her feelings. She taught herself that to survive. So, and she has gotten her first tattoo and um, (laughs) silly girl. But I told her, if you're going to get a tattoo, it just means something to you. You're going to have it for a long, long time. Being that this is April and it's sexual assault awareness month. Yes, I did actually. Yeah, (laughs) That's good because maybe our Um, audience members don't know that. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah, she got a tattoo of an eternity symbol on her wrist right here. And it's the color for sexual assault awareness. And underneath it, it says survivor. But in the eye, instead of an eye, she had them take the eye out and put a semicolon. Yes. I I feel like with all families, there's going to be those ups and down moments where like when she was in this relationship with this guy and ran away, I thought, oh. This is it. Like he's won. Her perpetrator has won. Her life is going to be extremely Mm -hmm. difficult because of this. And then she bounces right back and you're like, maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe he doesn't have that kind of power. Like maybe she has enough of me and my voice in her head saying you are worth more. You are amazing. You're amazingly strong and no one has the right to control you like that. Stand on your own two feet. Do you experience life and make it a good one? Absolutely. Absolutely. Do the best you can. Why spend it with some dude telling you what you can and can't do? (laughs) Or having to answer the phone every two minutes. Hey, I just went to the bathroom. Right. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, why? Why do that? So I think sometimes that little voice of me is in there that says, don't let people treat you like that. Like you oh. you deserve better. Of course, I always say that because I'm her mom, but she needs to know that inside herself. Like I'm worth a lot. Absolutely. That. And that's a hard thing for parents of sexual assaulted children to get yes. through their head, that they are worth more than that. And that 
they don't have to let this one thing define their entire life and that they deserve respect yes. and things like that. And they that. deserve love, um, healthy love. Yeah. Yes, healthy yeah. love. Um, not some false narrative that they're abusing Absolutely. because that is not it. And I just want to add this. You might find this interesting. I, as a child, I grew up in a home of chaos, lots of arguing, fighting, was not close to my mother. Uh, I suffered abuse, um, neglect. And I had set in my mind that when I had children, I would break the domestic violence cycle and the child abuse cycle. And I think that that is why I took it so hard whenever I found out because he took those things away from me. When he perpetrated this act, that was the one goal I had and he took it away from me. And now it's on my children to break that cycle of generational child abuse and sexual abuse and domestic violence and things like that. Like when I left her dad, the whole reason I left him was because he was physically abusive to me. And I had a daughter and I had two sons and I thought if I stay here, then my daughter will grow up thinking this is how a man treats his wife and that this is what she deserves. Well, it was good enough for mom. No, that's not normal. That's not okay. And I didn't want my sons growing up thinking that that's how they treat women. And I knew if I stayed, that's how it would be. And I didn't want that. So I really did try my best to break all of those cycles. And some days it's really hard not to feel like a failure in that. But I keep trucking on and telling myself, you're doing the best that you can. I guarantee you, you know. Sometimes as a mom, it's really hard not to be so careful on yourself. Guilt is one of the things that most parents in our situation carry and that it can be sometimes a daily struggle of, okay, wait a second, hold on. That's not my burden to carry. It's not my fault. And um, yes, like I can't do anything with what I don't know pretty much. And it's hard to remind yourself of that a lot. So it's rough. And I've come across many, many people in this group I will say that there is a lady, her name is Marissa Cohen. She is in the group. She is a sexual assault survivor. Oh, herself. I'm actually, yeah, she we're going to be author. doing an interview with her as well. Yeah, yeah. So. Yeah, she's an author. Okay, she's amazing. She's very empowering. I talked to her very early on. And <laughs> in my particular story, she was like, those assholes talking about the law right. and stuff like but trying to get it changed is like and that's just like in the law there's a loophole for yes. sex offenders so in most states it says sex offenders have to stay so many feet away from parks schools things like that right, right? unless they're a parent of a child that attends that mm. school So while my daughter was covered because she was the victim, he could still come to the school when he was released on that 120 days because the boys went to the same school, but in different buildings. I had to file a protection order. Yeah. My hope is that we can bring this to light, this kind of things. Yeah. Because there's definitely a lot of laws exactly like that, where it's like, okay, this is... Like, that's the thing. I don't know if it's everywhere, 
if it's just Missouri. I think there's laws. I'm not aware of the sex offender assessment program. My situation was a little different. My ex was in jail when the allegations came forward. We have not actually prosecuted. He hasn't gotten to no charges have been filed against him for what he did to my kids. Yeah. So that part has been really difficult. And he was in jail in a different state when um, by the time like we had lived in a different state, he got arrested there, went to jail there, moved back to where we were previously. And then the kids' memories started to surface at that point of like things that had happened previously. And so I just didn't, I didn't know the entire time that um, we were together. And even after my ex was arrested um, and he was actually arrested on child pornography charges. He was arrested. He went to jail and went through all that. And then it wasn't for a couple of years after he was arrested and in jail that my kids started to say, um, what is this? This is what's happening to me. What's going on? And I had to kind of be like, right. oh, because it started out as dreams and just kind yeah, like what weird recollections where it's the like, dream. I don't know if this yeah. is real or not. I don't know what's going on. And yeah. And so he never had to do anything in this state that we're in now. He's out. Yeah. And I think the thing that most people don't recognize is when you're a registered sex offender, they do put a level on it based on the nature of your crime. And oh, so yeah. that's the other thing of like, yeah. if you're, if they plead to a lesser charge, than what they actually yeah. did, then yeah. they could potentially be looked yeah. upon as a lower level sex offender as not as dangerous as they actually are. And I think people don't recognize yeah. that part of it. No. Now, my ex-husband's parole officer put him at a level three. Good. Absolutely. Tier three. So I think it's just the nature of if you'll do that to your own kid, you'll do that to mm-hmm. anybody's kid. I don't know. Sometimes I don't think my daughter understands how I see her. She looks at herself and how she sees herself. Sometimes I think they just don't see what we see. Like, you're like the strongest person I've ever seen in my life. Like, I don't know that if I was her, I'd be doing as good as she is. Yeah. You know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. I tell my kids Uh, they're amazing all the time. And my son is. I hope they do something with your husband. Like, Thank you. What can you do about that? Have you called the prosecutor? Um, I haven't. You know, what happened was uh, basically that the prosecutor came out and essentially sent us just a letter of like, at this time, we're not pro- we're not going to seek charges. Now, the good thing is that in our state, I'm in Arizona, and in our state, there's no limit. There's no, you know, of when charges have yeah. to be filed. Yeah. So, um, so that part's good. So it can happen at any time when they sent me this letter was kind of like my world had blown up. So, and you know, I was dealing with my kids who had come forward with everything and trying to handle their trauma. And it's like, I do not have time for that right now. He is still in jail for this other thing and he knows not to have contact with us. So at least there's that part. But at some point, yeah, at at some point I want to reach back out to them. I will say that when 
Uh, my daughter went through a psyche veil at one point we were seeking services through a particular organization and she had to have a, an evaluation done just a talking thing. Not really. Um, as a matter of fact, she didn't participate in it. She was like, I'm not talking. And I had to kind of go through and say, this is what happened. This is where she's at. This is what she has. And the psychiatrist was like, okay, so what happened to him? And I'm like, nothing. And she's like, what? And I said, nothing like they didn't, they won't go after him. And she was like, um, yeah, you need to call such and such and see if we can't get that changed. And I just haven't, I have not called yeah. them yet. Um, but that is, that is on my list to. It's a super hard yeah. battle. I, I get it. It's a hard And I battle. will say too, that initially um, my, um, kids were not crazy about the idea of going to court. That was also influential. And like, I just don't, I'm not sure I want to push this too hard, but now that they're further along in their healing process, I feel like now they're willing to do it in a way that would protect them. You know, they certainly don't want to sit across from their dad, but they definitely want to have an opportunity to speak their story. And so that's changed a little bit too, since, since everything started. You know, I wonder sometimes like one of the very first things my daughter said to me was, she said when she disclosed the same night, I don't want my dad to go to jail. Yeah, it's a very complicated feel. And she said, I'm afraid he's never going to love me again. He's going to be mad at me the rest of my life. And I told her right then and there, I said, if he could do that to you, then you don't mm-hmm. need that kind of love. You can't just let him do that to you and get away with it. Because we teach people how to treat Absolutely. us. You let him by with that, then... I can only do so much as your mom. He's court ordered visitation. And at least in jail, he'll get the help he needs. Well, boy, was I wrong about that. I, sometimes I wonder if there's really help. I don't think there is. This. You know, when my ex went to jail, we were still speaking at, at first. We talked about like essentially the services in jail. And I don't think that there's enough services for the people that need mm-hmm. healing. And not only that, to me, the other important thing of that is I'm sorry, but your ex should have been in jail while going through that 120-day program. That 120-day program should be yeah. in jail. And, okay, good. Yeah, it was. And it should be it an was. evaluation yeah, of like, was. we're going to do this yes, program before we even talk about what's going to happen to you after that. Well, see, the way it was supposed to work was when they did the 120-day assessment, which I told them, he's going to fly through it because he's a master mm-hmm. manipulator. He is a very book smart, intelligent person. I know that man. I was with him for 15 years of my life. Like I know him inside out. I can tell you what he's going to say before he even says it. They had him listed as a minimum risk. And within, you know, three months of being released, he was back in because he was alone with a minor because he can't even follow basic, Mm -hmm. simple Mm -hmm. rules. You know, you were given the golden ticket. You did this horrible thing numerous times, but was only charged for one count. Because, let me explain that. So he has one incident. And that's the one that okay. happened at his house. There was an incident on the way home from St. Louis, Missouri. There was an incident in San Antonio, Texas, I believe. Because he drove an 18-wheeler and she would go with him on spring break or summer break. They would have to go to each of those individual counties 
and file charges in each county. And then she would have to go all through over this again. Process yeah. Yeah. County. And I don't think that's very, the system is broken in that way. No. too. Yeah. And I don't even think of, of these kids when they disclose this fair, my daughter disclosed to me, then she disclosed to a cop and a criminal investigator then she had to go into child safe and do a forensic interview and disclose. Then they spoke to her some more at the rape mm-hmm. exam about it. You, you get what I'm saying? Like it's over. It's ridiculous. And here he sits in prison with a paralegal degree and his daughter's trying to figure out how she's going to pay his victims trying to figure out how she's right. going to pay for college. There is something back outwards with that. Right, Sorry, right, but there right. is. That's just my opinion. Like, yeah, it's like the services that are available to them are potentially services that uh, I don't know. Should they be available? And then the services that aren't available, you're kind of like, um, but why don't they have those services? Yeah. Like all the things that would help them change yeah. mentally are not available to them or are available to them in limited supply. And then the things that are that like, right. like you said, like school. I'm sorry, but I agree with you. Yeah. Why shouldn't a, a victim should have access to the same schooling that a prisoner should have access to at, at the same cost, which essentially boils down to free. It's insane. And I mean, girl, I've, you don't even know. I fought this man tooth and nail. So he was getting a VA disability mm-hmm. check, right? And he was claiming my kids as dependent. I even hit his disability Good. check when he went to prison. I wanted my kids half of that. And you can do that as a military spouse. Okay, good deal. Even though we were divorced, I was acting as their legal parent guardian. And so here I thought, oh, this is going to be a good thing, blah, blah, blah. It was like $33 a month per kid. But guess Mm. what? He don't deserve to make a dime off my children. Right. And so I wasn't even going to let him have that. Screw that. He doesn't deserve that. And so... I mean, it's just been a lot of things that I've had to work really hard at doing. And it's been a lot. And it is for all of us. And I'm just thinking, my gosh, we still have a lifetime to go. It feels like he will come out of prison. When my son, who was nine at the time during the assault Mm -hmm. and seen the assault, he will be graduating in May of that year. Mm -hmm. And he gets out in mm. June and our youngest will be wow. a sophomore going into his junior year. It makes me nervous, scared. I don't know. I just hope he stays away and leaves our family alone and he'll go back to prison. It's only a matter of time. If you as a perpetrator can sit there and say, well, hundreds of victims go through this every single day. And they just get over it and move on. They don't ever really get over right. it and move on. They find some sort of normal and they try to deal with it the best that they can. But underneath the smiles and the everything else, there's something else Absolutely. just below it. Yeah, yeah. I agree. Maybe you think they are, but just that mindset mm-hmm. that he has, he will reoffend. And in that moment, there's going to be another kid going through what my kids are going through. I hate that. I hate knowing that and right. not being able to do right. anything. If he'd have got two life sentences, he wouldn't yeah. even be yeah. getting out. Yeah. So I just, I don't know. 
Well, hopefully together we'll be able to do that. We'll definitely be able to work together. You know, hopefully between your website and my podcast, we'll get everybody together and and get some stuff moving in the right direction. Yeah. And like Marissa's website, I don't know if you've ever been to her website, but she has a lot of information and a lot of strings that she can pull and people that she knows. I don't think I was ever realized how big of a deal this was until it happened to our Mm -hmm. family. Mm Mm-hmm. And how often it happened until it happened. Absolutely. It does. As a matter of fact, you know, one of the reasons why I started doing this podcast is every time, you know, I didn't run around sharing my story with everybody, but when I did share my story, the people that I would share my story with, their response would be something along the lines of, oh, I had a cousin, a neighbor, a friend, uh, whoever that that happened to, or that happened to me. And so, and there were times when it's like, what, that happened to you? You just didn't. And um, the amount of, I literally can't think of one person that I told my story to where they didn't have that kind of a response. Where And so to me, it's like, wow, if it's happening to that many people, why aren't we talking about it more? So, yeah. Yeah. Like, why isn't something being done? Why aren't we changing laws? Why aren't we doing something? Absolutely. Like something has to change for the victims. Something has to change. Like um, I'm going, um, I think it was on the 16th, uh, the next town over Jefferson city. It's huge. They're having like a candlelight vigil for sexual assault awareness month. And things like that. So I try to attend things like that because there's also house representative speaker guests there and stuff. Mm -hmm. So that kind of gets your foot in the door to meeting people, the right people absolutely, to be able to say, Hey, this is my story. How do I make a change? I just need somebody to help me make that change. This is what I want to say all the time. Let him out and let him move in right next door to you and your kids. Exactly. If you're not comfortable with that, then he shouldn't be out. He shouldn't be free. Simple. I think that they all should be. (laughs) I've said before, they all deserve the death penalty. I don't think they can be redeemed. After speaking to him and seeing no progress, he's still the exact same person. I'm just like, can they really be redeemed? People like him. Right, right. I don't know. And what and what happens when they if they yeah. can't and how do yeah yeah yep that's what always happens like it seems like they always get out and most of the time mm-hmm. they reoffend it's a matter of time and they reoffend and then you have more kids that have more trauma and it could have easily been right. prevented and it's just sad to me because they knew they just didn't do anything so I. I don't know. I think the system needs an overhaul. I've talked with Marissa about that many times about, you know, the systems that need overhauls and I'll see stories on the news on Facebook and I'll tag Marissa and I'll, she'll be like, this is effing <laughs> How do you sleep at night as judges, lawyers, prosecutors, my ex-husband's lawyer, how does right, he sleep right. at night? How do you sleep at night knowing that you have granddaughters, you have daughters, and you just got somebody off who did that Mm -hmm. to his own child? 
you know, with a light sentence and putting right. back in the community, right. you know, like how do you sleep at night with that? I think that's, yeah, no, I it's agree. There's definitely things that need to be changed. And hopefully, like I said, yeah, hopefully we can, hopefully we can do that. Well, thank you so much, Melinda, for being with us today. No problem. I've enjoyed having you as a guest. And as we said before, so the the name of the group is Support Group for Parents of Sexually Abused Children. It's on Facebook. And we'll also have a link to that group on our episode webpage. If you liked today's episode, let us know in the comments section. You can also fill out the Contact Us page at our website, www.throughtheundertow.com. Or you can email us at throughtheundertow at gmail.com. Also, if you know of anyone who'd like to be a sponsor of our show or a guest on our show, info is provided in our show notes. Finally, if you like what we're doing here, please take a moment to click on the support us page and buy me a cup of coffee or PayPal links. All tips, donations are greatly appreciated. All right, that's it for this episode, guys. If you're going through difficulties because your child experienced sexual abuse, check out the support group on Facebook. Also, recognize that there is help out there, there are answers, and you are not alone. And no, you only have to take things one moment at a time, and we're here to help you get through the undertone.